Hey there, welcome to Nice Work, a podcast of the Super Nice Club, where we are just doing our damnedest to make the world 10% nicer. And we're super glad, super duper glad that you are here to help us get there by any and every means necessary. I am your host, Todd Brilliant, and today I am joined by artist, art historian, and friend, Lucienne Allen. Uh, Lucienne is someone I've been fortunate to know in the real world, along with her husband, David, and I can vouch absolutely for their super niceness. Uh, Lucienne is one of these artists who was born into a family of artists, and in her case, super accomplished, famous artists. And part of her work, her passion, entails keeping the family works of art and all the stories that go with them fresh, fresh in the minds of the public and, and in the hands of collectors, of course. Her grandmother was Lucienne Block, the widely renowned muralist, photographer, and sculptor, and, and Lucienne's deep and lasting friendship with Frida Kahlo and Diego Rivera is a lot about what we're going to talk about in just a minute. The three of them formed a mutual admiration society that lasted a lifetime. So if you're a Frida or a Diego fan or both, this is a talk that should interest you. And guess who Lucienne's great-grandfather was? If you're a classical music lover, you might have already guessed it, Ernest Bloch. So yeah, this is one crazy, talented family. What, what I really loved about talking with Lucienne was hearing the comfortable passion she has for sharing her family's story. I've had some friends with super luminary family members who've, who've not been able to find peace with or escape from the shadow of, of that fame. Not, not here. Here we have someone who is honored to be able to fulfill that role within and for her family. I think it's great. You will too. So real quick, don't forget to nab your Super Nice Club gear at superniceclub.com. We have brand new Just Be Nice shirts in olive green and pink. They're really cool. We're selling out of everything else prior to relaunching in a few months with new looks, totally fresh collection. So the Generation 1 stuff, the original Super Nice Club logo gear, it's all limited and it's almost gone. There's nothing left in a full-size run, so get it now. Okay, this is the 65th episode of Nice Work. So here are some interesting, or not, tidbits about the number 65. I didn't know this first one. Uh, didn't know. In 2001, Sammy Hagar re-recorded his hit, I Can't Drive 55, with the 55 changed to 65 for NBC's NASCAR broadcasts. Yeah, fascinating. Um, of the Odd Future group, the hip-hop group, which the Super Nice Club totally endorses, uh, their, their side project, Mellow Hype, has performed a song entitled 65. Uh, what'd you know? 65 is commonly used in the names of many dishes of South India cuisine. For instance, Chicken 65. And the stuff that I know off the top of my head about the numbers, is I impress myself. Uh, what else can I think of? Um, oh, I remember. The M65 field jacket was commonly worn by American troops during the war in Vietnam, also known as the Vietnam War. Yeah. Um, a 65th anniversary is sometimes referred to as a sapphire jubilee. For the record, sapphires and rubies are way cooler than diamonds. Don't you think? They look cooler. They're rarer. I don't know. Anyway. Uh, and lastly, kind of a big admission, 65, it's the number of kids I have. No, seriously. Kids are super nice. And I've just been super busy. All right. That's 65. Let's do this. Turn off everything else, tune out the rest of the world, and drop in to nice work with Lucien Allen. Oh, oh, hey, come here. Say hi, Ryerson, aka number 57. Lucien Allen, welcome to Nice Work. I this has been. Let's see. This will be the sixty-something episode. I don't even remember what number. Uh, but you were on my first list. You were on the first list when I when I wrote down 
like five or 10 names I wanted to have on this podcast. You were on that list and here we finally are. You've been playing hard to get for over a year. Thank you, COVID, for slowing you down enough to get on the podcast. Welcome. Thank you so much, Todd. So I'm looking out the window behind you at gorgeous uh, trees. I, I don't really know my trees. I'm going to guess those are um, that those are olive trees. Yeah, Douglas fir, exactly. Douglas fir, <laughs> right? Yeah. <laughs> there's probably some redwoods out there as well. Yeah, there's some redwoods back there. Absolutely beautiful. Um, I've been to your ranch, the property, but tell us, tell us about, it. tell us where you are. Uh, I'm about three hours north of San Francisco in a tiny town called Wallala in Northern California, uh, Mendocino County. I'm um, a couple miles from the ocean up on a hill we call the Ridge Top. My grandparents moved here in 1961, and my family and I moved here in 1975 when I was three. And so I've lived on this same mile-long dirt road my entire life. I took off, did a couple years at college and high school in another area, but then came back and raised my kids next door to my parents and grandparents. It's a true family compound. It's, it's, it's amazing. I feel pretty fortunate to be able to still be here and make a living. Yeah, most of us don't get to do that. And some people would never want to do that. They might hear that and go, oh, God, wouldn't you just want to go and, <laughs> and, and spread your wings somewhere? But as someone who grew up moving around a lot with my mom, I always romanticized that. And, and I think it's because it's romanticized in films, too, like that big family house that everybody comes back to for Christmas and holidays. And it, it, it's the, the hub at the spoke of generations, right? You know, I'm always so in jealous of that, but also mad appreciation. So well done, family. Thank you. Well, we've actually created the hub here. My mom lives in my grandparents' old place. So the house I grew up in is actually across the street. And then we have a lovely Italian neighbor that lives there. We get to go over and visit. And, and your husband, David's done so much cool work. It's a yes. never-ending never story. <laughs> it is a never-ending story. Just to paint the picture better for listeners, um, your grandparents moved there in 1961. Who were your grandparents? Let's let's just jump right into your namesake, Lucienne Block. Um, tell us about Lucienne and why she moved there and where she moved there from. I have so many questions. Let's okay. just let's start talking. <laughs> we'll start. Well, so she was born in Geneva, Switzerland, okay. 1909. Came to America with her family uh, when she was about eight years old. Um, lived on the East Coast and um, met my grandfather through um, a mutual friend. They both worked for Diego Rivera. We can hit on that in a little bit. But they uh, fell in love and uh, started having children and decided that New York City was probably not the best place to raise their kids. They ended up moving to Flint, Michigan, which is where my grandfather uh, grew up after he came to America. And then um, after they had their third child, my mother, they decided that the industrial city was probably not the best place to raise a family and headed west. My grandmother's father had lived in a town called Mill Valley, California, in Marin County. And um, they had friends that still lived there uh, on the hill. And so they were moving their way with the whole family in the back of a 1948 Buick and ended up there in Mill Valley. And um, the house right next door is for sale. So to their good friends, who are the uh, San Francisco Conservatory of Music founders, Lillian Hodge had an Ada Clement. So they became their neighbors, raised their family in Mill Valley. And then my grandfather, who had a frame shop in Mill Valley, started to have a little bit of a nervous breakdown with the city changing and going through his midlife crisis. And so they decided to look for a farm, a tiny farm somewhere that was close by the city, but not too close. And uh, they found this place in Wallala and moved up and continued to do, they're both um, artists, my grandmother being a fresco muralist, mostly. They moved up here and started um, doing their, traveling to do their frescoes in different states and whatever, but, you know, started a farm, little mini farm here with, you know, chickens and bees and goats and pigs and uh, and their orchard, and my grandfather learned how to graft fruit trees, and they just started living the idyllic life. Chickens and bees and 
goats and trees and everything <laughs> and artists. They sound like hippies to me. And up in Wallala too. No, I know. It's that I mean it sounds perfect. That sounds like such a great life. And Mill Valley, I'm probably gonna go back and 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 punch in the, the Mill Valley song. Do you know it? Mm-mm, which one? Um the the famous school teacher song Mill Valley. Mill Valley. No, it's you'll have to Google it. It was like a, it was a top hit in the U.S. back in oh my way gosh. back when. I'll have to Google yeah. it. There's a, a video that um, who is the famous director uh, Francis Ford Coppola directed yes. the video for the Mill Valley song. Okay, because he's local. Yeah, yeah. So check out the Francis Ford Coppola Mill okay. Valley video. And there's a version in Spanish. <laughs> yeah, perfect. <laughs> uh, as a total aside, but yeah, Mill Valley, Mill Valley, California. Uh, let's talk about your amazing grandmother. Because I kind of have a crush on your grandma, just, you know, like an intellectual art crush. When I was out at your place and we went through the the building that houses uh, a lot of her photos, mm-hmm. the prints uh, of, of you know, her work and a lot of it of, of Frida, which we'll talk about, um, but also <laughs> a piece of art that I'm going to come back and bother you. Do you know what I'm talking I about? Know what you're talking you know where about. I'm going with this? Because yes, it's do. been a few years. He's not done anything with it. I found a book that she wrote when, how old was she? Nine. Nine years old. And I'm just thumbing through it. It's, on, it's at the top of this cardboard box or something in there. Uh, actually, it's, it was inside this intricate walnut chest that glowed when I lifted up the lid. <laughs> and I saw this manuscript made by a precocious <laughs> nine-year-old with sketchings. And it's about a, a cat, right? Yeah. Autobiography of a tomcat. It is an incredible book. If you're a publisher out there, an art book publisher, first of all, Lucien Block is a famous artist, right? With a huge pedigree. She's published a lot of books, published <laughs> a lot of works, uh, famous photos, famous muralist. There is an unpublished book that she wrote and illustrated when she was nine years old, the autobiography of, Tom, of a Tomcat, that would be a bestseller if you put it out there with the story, even if it wasn't Lucien Block's work. It's right. incredible. But right. the fact that it has this huge pedigree, publishers out there, because I know there are thousands of you listening, <laughs> get a hold of Lucienne Allen and make a deal. We'll make a, a good deal. deal. That book is amazing. And then I also saw glassworks that she had done, uh, hood ornament, uh, different things like that. So she was a, an artist of, of various stripes who worked in various mediums. What was her, what was her, I know that she helped with glassworks in uh, Amsterdam. Mm-hmm. At college there. Leardham Holland at a oh, okay. factory. Yeah, but helped transition that factory into more than just a glass factory, but also into kind of a place that's now famous for its glass art. Yes. Yeah. yeah. What was her sort of career arc? Is there an easy way to define that? No, it's not easy. <laughs> <laughs> um, she really, so she actually wanted to be the second Michelangelo. She wanted to be a sculptress. So when, okay. she, when she first took off, when her father sent her, she, her sister and her mother to Paris from America to um, continue their education. She went to the Beaux-Arts and, um, and studied sculpture. She did a little bit of um, painting as well. Um, she did sculpting with Antoine Bordel and painting with Andre Lot. And, um, but from there, she, uh, her father had met the director of the Leardham Glass Factory. And he had said, you know, well, my daughter's an artist and she's, you know, she'd love to come and work at your factory. And the guy had children that were around her age. So he says, well, just have her come. She can stay with us and see what she can do, what she likes. And that was her first real uh, paying job. So she got there and she started designing glass sculpture. And this is, you know, the, the era where things are pretty simple 
Art Deco. Um, so some of the stuff she designed are, are just incredible. She did a full-size head, a hollow head that just has the, the thought of the nose and eyes and the neck and the little hairline. And it's to me, I just think it's one of her most beautiful pieces. But she did a lot of different glass design at that time. And she was maybe 20 years old around there right yep. at the time? Exactly. Yeah. 20. Late 20s, early 30s. Yeah. Yeah. And then from the glass, she went to... So she um, she came to America back again, 1931, and that's where she met uh, Frida and Diego. Now, she had, she'd also, I mean, she, she was never idle, so she always had, like, woodblock, and she would do woodblocks um, cutting, so she could do prints of woodblocks. She did, um, you know, a lot of painting and uh, sketching. She'd go to the zoo, and she'd sketch animals and you know, then she tried to do them in glass. But when she met Diego, she learned about fresco actually being done these days, those days. And uh, it just changed her life. She, she had, you know, gone to museums when she went to the Louvre and it just kind of made her sick with all the art everywhere. What she really connected with was when she would go into churches and she wasn't religious by any means, but she would go in there for kind of a reprieve from the art scene and she would see these frescoes on the walls. And she just thought that that was true art, just the way that it became one with the building. So Mm -hmm. when Rivera uh, was talking to her about, you know, how he really incorporated the uh, fresco into the design of the of the building um, she looked at art in a completely different way it was the same time that she also met Frank Lloyd Wright and he saw her glass sculptures and he invited her to to help him at the his new school that was starting in Taliesin East in Wisconsin and he had the same you know they, they were both on the same page with architecture and art being one and the same together instead of it just being like you go into a building you do a piece of art you hang it on the wall or you know you paint a, a pretty picture on the wall that's not what she was into she was it was also she was much more political in her in her art as well for those that aren't familiar with it we, the phrase that you used was uh I don't remember the phrase, but you <laughs> the idea that the, the art and the building were one, right? Yes. So can you explain sort of the how a fresco becomes part of the building? Because yes. not a lot of us really realize that until we are lucky enough to learn it. So right. this is a, the learning moment for everybody, okay. <laughs> or some. So let's, we'll just use one of her first um, murals that she did. There was a wall in the House of Detention for Women in New York City, and there were two brick walls leading up to this flat wall that you would look at as you walked in with like brick walls on either side of it. So you would do layers of plaster and different, the plaster, each layer of plaster would be different grades of sand to um, lime plaster mix um, or marble dust. And it would be, you know, there would be the first coat would be the roughest and then the second coat would be a little bit less rough and the third coat would be even finer. Um, After those three coats are on the wall, you turn around and you make your finest mixture, your intonaco coats, and you actually do your fourth and fifth coats together, one after the other, just as much as the person can paint in that day. And then when that, you know, you touch the back of your hand to that wet lime plaster, you feel that it's just perfect. And you take your paints, which are all um, natural paints from, you know, ores and um, rock, and they're ground so fine that they can actually float on the surface of water. They're ground with some distilled water with on a glass with like a big, heavy stone. It's actually one of the first things she did for Rivera was grinding his colors. Mm-hmm. Um, then you take those colors, uh, and then you go up there and onto that wet plaster, you paint. So there's no taking back that once that a paintbrush is laid upon that plaster, it absorbs that paint. And so when you're done, you, you know, it would, often they would start with a black to make the shadows and then add the color afterwards. When that plaster dries, it becomes permanent. And there's a chemical thing that happens between um, the wet lime and that those earth pigments, and it becomes permanent. So like back in 1986, you know, 50, over 50 years after Rivera, had done his Detroit Institute of Art murals, she and my grandfather went back to clean them. And it's basically, you know, soap and water on a sponge. That's it. You clean it with your sponge with water. And if you've done the fresco correctly, it's there forever. Yeah, it literally is part of the surface of the building. It's not paint layered on top. That's the big difference. Yeah. Yeah. 
I had no idea that gave my appreciation for frescoes just skyrocketed to that point because yeah. you just can't make a mistake. No. You can't fix it. Well, you can. So here's the thing. If the next day you look and see that you don't like something, that plaster is still kind of soft and you can go in there and you can actually remove with a um, like a triangle. Um, oh. You know, you can remove that amount. And my grandfather was her her plaster that's part of why she was such a good fresco artist because she had such a good partner who could do the fresco so well um you remove it at like a 45 right along the edge so if you ever go and look at some frescoes you can kind of see sometimes where one day ended and the other day started or you can see where maybe they took out my grandmother did a mural in san francisco at the saint mary her uh, Virgin Episcopal Church, and you can see one section where she did some words about Mary. That when she was done, she found out she quoted it incorrectly. So you can see where she, it was just basically taken out, scraped out, and then replastered right up to the edge of the plaster from the day before or two days before. Um, but after that's purely dry, after you're talking about a month, you're you're hammering, you're you're chopping the mural down. Exactly. So any any mistakes, you can note sort of the history of where they had to make a fix. Yes. It's going to be visual if you know what you're looking yes, for. Yes, absolutely. Which adds a whole other level of information. Yeah. You know, you can tell when a when a when a uh, fresco may have been censored at some point. Sure. Or when they had to change somebody's you know visage or something. I, I think it's fantastic. So. <laughs> Uh, fresco, and you can't really collect frescoes either. Well, if you, so, <laughs> pretty my, tough to do, right? It's not a mural, you know. So my grandmother yeah. also would do whenever she would do a fresco class. She like the picture behind you that you've got this, mm -hmm. you know, just a little portrait. She would always do a portrait of my grandfather that day, and she that should be demonstrated while they would be teaching. And then every you know student would do their own, or they would do a big panel. But she, we have a lot of little portable fresco panels. In fact, okay. when she first met Rivera, he was making some portable fresco panels that's why she went to help him in new york at his they were having a he was having a one-man show at the museum of modern art and she you know she's like well i'd love to grind your colors and he was like come on over and that's how she got started grinding the colors for those portable fresco mirror um there wouldn't be a mural just a painting fresco paintings so she's grinding colors for diego rivera mm-hmm and I'm not even going to get into it. If if you guys don't know who Diego Rivera is, just you know, a global icon, fair to say, um, <laughs> artist, uh, political activist, just larger than life character. Just Google it; you'll figure it out. That would just be a whole different podcast to cover Diego. But so she's grinding paint for Diego Rivera. She looks over and she sees like this chief plasterer doing his plastering. And she's like, "Damn, that guy's good looking." <laughs> And that's your grandfather? Yeah, but it actually wasn't. She didn't meet him for another two years. Oh, so, you just wrecked the story. <laughs> I know. Sorry. But that's the essence of it, right? He, well, I mean, kind he of. He was a plasterer. She was working for him. No, actually, you want to know the okay. real story? The real yeah, yeah. Story. Okay. Accuracy is. <laughs> so she actually did. She ended up. We can, we'll, we'll skip 1932 for a second because she goes to Detroit. She goes to Detroit and stays with Frida and Diego. But then they go back to New York in 33 to work on the man of the crossroads at the Rockefeller center. And mm -hmm. she, after she goes to Wisconsin with Frank Lloyd Wright, she goes back to New York as well. And one of the assistants that she'd met while she was living in Detroit with Frida and Diego was an assistant named Arthur Neendorf. And um, Diego notoriously didn't pay his assistants very much money. Um, if at all, my grandfather almost died while he was working for him in Michigan. But they're in New York now, and she gets a knock on her door, and here's her old friend, Arthur Neendorf, and he's got this new friend with him, the new assistant, Stephen Pope Dimitrov, they called Dimmy. And they said, hey, you know, we were hoping we could um, borrow 20 bucks. And this is 1933, so not, you know, having 20 bucks is a big deal. Yeah. But she was good with her money, and she um, and she had it. So she was like, I don't normally like to lend money to friends. And they said, well, we'll make you the chief photographer of the Rockefeller Center murals. So she agreed to that, gave the 20 bucks, best 20 bucks she ever spent. And from there, she started help when they were both working on the Rockefeller Center. That's where they fell in love. Ah, yeah. And that Rockefeller Center piece... Tell us the story to that piece, because that piece was uh, had a history. Yes. Still has a history. Still has a history, especially with the, you know, destroyed art network of people that are 
heavy into that. Um, so he had painted, um, the, this was supposed to be a very simple black and white mural. He, of course, had to bring some red, you know, Soviet red into the mural um, and painted Lenin. And um, even though his original sketch had had Lenin and it, even he was on the wall at one point, th- he heard that that they were not going to like this. So he's decided to put Lenin front and center and made him a big deal, redid it um, from the sketching. Because you, you do sketching on that third coat before you add the fourth and fifth and do your final. So you can make changes before you put your plaster down. So he did change it. He brought Lenin front and center um, and, um, well, a little bit more front and center. When uh, Rockefeller got word and that, you know, they were going to lose all the people that wanted to rent the building because it was a brand new building. Um, he told uh, Diego, you got to stop work. So Diego came to all the plasterers and assistants and said, stop work. You know, we've been told to stop because of Lenin. And um, he says, now the battle begins. So my grandmother snuck her little Leica camera in her overalls one last time and had uh, my grandfather there with a the light. And they pretended they were doing some work because there was there were watchmen around with their guns. And um, she took the photographs of that mural because Frida was like, you got to go and get some photographs of this now. And she was like, well, Frida's saying, so I'm going to get off, get my ass out there and get these taken, took the photographs. Um, and they are the only existing photographs that, of that mural that exists now. And then the, they put a tarp over it. And, um, you know, my grandparents wrote in all their native tongue. My grandmother wrote in French, my grandfather wrote in Bulgarian, all in the, cause they had whitewashed the walls and they were writing, you know, Free, free art. Stop censoring, shit, <laughs> Mared. Right. Yeah. <laughs> um, but then, so it was about a year later that my grandparents were walking home from a movie, and uh, they noticed there were about like fifty uh, or twenty fifty-gallon cans out in front of the building, and there were that was the mural all chopped up. And she had talked to a, one of the workers there, and he says, "Damn, I don't know what you put in that plaster, but that was hard to take down." So they thought, if anything, that you could just you could paint over it, which could maybe the paint could be removed, or you could you could glue down something and paint on the thing that was glued because it was it was. She really thought he was looking towards the future with this mural that it was more than just what this building was going to be at the times, and she, they were. I mean, they called the newspapers when they found out, and there were strikes, and she took photographs of the strikes at the time. Um, artists were pissed. It was it's it was not the right thing to do ever doesn't matter who you are you don't destroy art yeah that's one of the more famous cases of artist censorship in the united states yes also because it's was so because obviously politically motivated unnecessarily so if you ask most people i think today but that brings us into her your grandmother your grandparents you know more than an artistic friendship they had this artistic political just uh community that included Diego and Frida. So how did they get into that? How did that, how did that friendship start? Well, so um, back to 1931, um, when she first met Rivera, it was at a speakeasy. um, And then they had this banquet. Of course it was. (laughs) (laughs) And then there was this banquet held in his honor. And um, she was just talking about art and politics with Diego for like, you know, an hour there. She she was seated next to him because um, she spoke French fluently that was her native language and he spoke French and his English wasn't that great. So um, the woman who was throwing the banquet was a a friend of the family. And she said, well, you know, you're an artist and you speak a language he understands. So you guys sit next to each other. So they did this, you know, for hours. And at one point she, and she was admiring um, Frida from afar, um, her jewelry and her beautiful, you know, unibrow. And um, Frida comes up to her at one point and she says, I hate you. And my grandmother just laughed and thought it was the best thing because she was she was getting pretty sick of the whole bourgeois society at the time. She was ready to, you know, do what she was used to. She was a, a bra buster from way back. She didn't like the whole conformity, you know, fitting in, flat your chest, any of that. So it was it was refreshing. And she at that point she sought her out. And then, you know, they were only two years apart. Frida was a couple years older than her. And um they just really became fast friends immediately. Now, for the Frida fans out there, myself included, among them, I think a lot of that's a lot of people are admirers of, of Frida. Um, I just want to be just super clear here. 
Lucien was not just a bystander in Frida's life. Lucien was a, a peer, a talent, and, and I really hope you look into her work because there's a reason why Frida and Diego befriended her. Uh, it's because she is a powerhouse artist. I just want to just want to make that clear that this isn't this podcast isn't really about somebody who was existing within the shadow of Frida Kahlo. This is a podcast about a friend and a peer. Absolutely. So, that friendship, when you were growing up, mm-hmm. was that something in your family? Like, I mean, you had, there were pieces, uh, there were photos of Frida, there were pieces of Frida's in the house. Um, was she talked about kind of, did you think of her kind of like as this lost auntie or, I mean, how, what was her presence like? How, how did you grow into her? Well, she, when I was young, cause I'm, I'm, you know, like I'm a year younger than you. Um, mm-hmm. <laughs> she wasn't famous yet. It, it only really started when I, you know, became a, a preteen that her, she just started becoming known, uh, especially in the Bay area. I mean, she'd had her fame in the you know thirties when she had her first shows and stuff, but she, she really kind of was, you know, Rivera's wife. Um, mm. but when freedom mania started happening in 79, I think was really the beginning. And then 80, um, she, I just, she was just like somebody that one of my grandmother's friends, just like, you know, um, Lillian Hodgehead and Ada Clement, the founders of the conservatory of music. For me, everybody's just anybody. I mean, it, it doesn't, names don't mean anything. Art is cool. And I really enjoyed looking at her art. I thought that, you know, I was kind of a morbid kid. And so her art was more interesting to me than, than the many of their other artist friends. There were, yes, there was always art everywhere. They had a lot of famous artist friends and a lot of their art in the house and in my house. And uh, hers was definitely more appealing to me in that sense. Um, but I mean, I remember I had gone, so my mom had take, brought his family back to Mill Valley uh, from Wallala here for a few years to get us into better school. And I had a kid that was in my class who was doing his, you know, you have to pick a famous person and do your report on him. And he was doing Diego Rivera. And I said, oh, yeah, my grandparents, yeah, they were friends with him. And he was like, yeah, sure. You know, I mean, so when that came out, you know, but I wasn't like, oh, no, yeah, for sure. Let me tell you. It was just like, okay, whatever. I mean, I knew the stories. You know, they, there would be an event that would happen and my grandparents would, you know, come down and we'd all go to it. And um, so it was, it, she just, yeah, I guess a, a, an auntie would be a, a good way to say it. Um, she was my uncle's godmother. So mm-hmm. she was definitely, you know, family to a certain extent. But um, and I, I think one of the big things is that um, a lot of people would... Um, actually think that I was, when I would talk about my grandmother, they'd say, oh, I didn't know Frida had children. No, not, not Frida's granddaughter, my grandmother, her friend, you know? Um, so that was always a hard thing to separate people because, you know, they want to, they want to associate you with, you know, the more famous person. If you're talking about them, that's not, it was not the case with me. I'm like, look at my grandma's, like you were saying, she stood on her own. She was, I think that, you know, Frida also looked up to her as my grandmother looked up to Frida. They, they both, they, they were on the same page with creating their art together. They, they learned lithography together when they were living in Detroit. Um, you know, my grandmother might not have done lithography, you know, if she wasn't living there with Frida and they taught themselves. It was, um, and, you know, certainly with Rivera, I would say Rivera was more of a um, influence. Rivera was much more of an influence on her art as an artist um, because of his fresco murals, the, the fact that he would include the cycle of life within the mural, that's something she always carried on. So you would see um, a, a, a seed pod that was splitting with a green, you know, coming out of it. And then you would also see the dead leaf falling to the ground, that kind of a, a thing. And she learned that directly from him and, and you know, continued with that. It was a big part of her life. Did she keep any uh, journals or tell the story? I know a lot of people were listening like, God, are there any like Frida stories that that uh, Lucienne knows that we don't know? Because, you know, people are always looking for like the little extra info, the extra tidbits. Did, did any of her recollections or any of her stories sort of inform the greater public um, picture of Frida? Or is it mostly through her photographs? Because her photos are, of Frida are legend. And we'll get into that in a little bit, but I'm just curious. Like, Well, so Hayden Herrera is probably the preeminent biographer of Frida. She interviewed mm-hmm. my grandparents, you know, way back when, when she did her book. And um, yeah, the, I would say that anybody who knows Frida 
deeply knows Lucien Bloch and her relationship. Uh, my grandmother did keep diaries um, until she started having kids. And so when she was living with, <laughs> as you know, how that can get in the way of things. <laughs> um, I mean, she used to keep little little notes here and there, back of a you know bank statement. She would write you know everything that was going on. But you know I have to come across these things and can't find them. She you know Frida had one of her major miscarriages when my grandmother was living with her in Detroit, and you know she, my grandmother wrote about that, which you know Frida made her first lithograph of that miscarriage. And then she also did a painting, you know, during that time, Frida went through, you know, a major upheaval in her life. Her mother died. Um, my grandmother uh, accompanied Frida to Mexico when her mother got sick and then she died while they were there in Mexico. And when she got back, you know, Frida was super depressed and didn't know what to do. Wasn't, didn't want to do any work, didn't want to do anything. And, and my grandmother was like, well, you know, let's, you know, let's, let's learn, I'll learn Spanish. I'll help you with English. Um, they would pick subjects to learn about, you know, the solar system. Um, Diego said, you know, you got, you know, just, you got to paint, you got to start painting your reality, paint your life. And then she really, that's when she really took off artistically to start painting more of the unusual in her life. Um, some people like to say surreal, her stuff is surreal my personal opinion would be to disagree with that slightly. I think that both she and Rivera kind of felt that people who just paint surreal are kind of avoiding reality in their, at least that's what I remember talking with my grandma about. So I just think that was her reality. Her reality was uh, different, (laughs) you know? Yeah. And just a a different perception. Yeah. Yeah. You know, layered perceptions and, uh, that's a that's a really interesting take. Like it doesn't necessarily have to be surreal just because it's a it's a different version of reality that you're looking at in the artwork. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Are there are there any common misperceptions about Frida that drive you crazy? Okay. I, I probably. I want to give you a platform here. If there's anything. <laughs> well, I just want to say I just went to the De Young um, exhibit, and it was really beautifully curated. But the one thing that kind of um, I don't want to say irritated me. It was a little off-putting. Um, was that th- on some of the pieces they had somebody interpret that piece of art, and um, I just don't think that any that everybody needs to interpret every single thing she did. I mean, some sometimes she might have just painted from her heart. Like, do you really need to try to interpret that? Like, in one painting they had there, she had a, a brooch on. The brooch had a hummingbird on it. And, you know, the way they described this bird who was surrounded by four walls it couldn't release itself from. And I thought, she's wearing a brooch with a hummingbird on it. You don't have to go that deep into the fact that this poor bird can't get out of the brooch. She might have had 10 brooches for all we know. She chose the hummingbird one to paint. And if you want to go that deep and you want to try to pull something out of it, great. But sometimes just kind of appreciate it for what it is. Beautiful art. Yeah, it just she was just feeling like painting a hummingbird. It reminds me of a of a famous, more contemporary artist who was asked about all the symbols, the symbolisms that he would put in a lot of arcane symbols and sort of uh, alchemical symbols mm-hmm. and all that kind of stuff. And he said, I, "I'm more, you know, it's it's graphic design to me. <laughs> I throw it in there, and I know that people are going to then attribute something to it." Right. You know, so he was just flipping that on itself. He's like, I'll just throw these in. They have really no value to me other than they look pretty. But I know that collectors and art historians are going to think that I'm, you know, basically a deep thinker. Yeah. And they're, you know, yep. put this on there. Um, I won't name the artist because I, I don't want to, you know, make it seem like I don't appreciate his work. But I laughed that he said that out loud. Mm-hmm. You know, I thought that was pretty funny and pretty bold. Uh, it's kind of the flip side of, of what you're talking about there. Uh, I think a lot of people recognize that. Like, you know, it's when you become that famous, people are going to analyze yes. every single thing you do. Writers, it drove me crazy as a kid. The teachers would ask us, what do you think the author's hidden meaning was <laughs> to this phrase? And I would get into it with my teachers. Like, I think they were just writing the story. Yeah. Just like you said, yeah. you know. Um, so anything else, any big public things about Frida that, that you think that maybe she wasn't given a fair shake about? or? Well, I think, I mean, I appreciate the fact that she is now a model for um, – Anybody and and anyone who's got their, you know, she had polio and she had affairs with women as well as men. And so every different aspect of people want to grasp on and say, oh, she's our savior in the, you know, for people with deformities or, or, you know, anything that's 
defiguring of the body or, you know, anybody who's the LGBTQ community, well, she's our savior because um, I think that, you know, she just, you know, was a, a woman who struggled with a lot of pain, but I think she also was just kind of a pessimistic, sad for the most part, um, woman who, you know, got into drugs later in life. And, you know, I think we've all have that, that auntie that, you know, drinks a little too much brandy, you know? Um, I I think that she, she is an icon for people. And I I think I appreciate that people like and need that. But um, I I just think that my view of her is that she was just a, a, a normal everyday person who did some incredible work and, um, has now been catapulted into some, the fame that she actually thought maybe she would reach someday. I mean, she wrote my grandmother once and said, one day I'm going to be the biggest piece of caca in this world. At the same, at the same time, she's being, you know, there's articles about her, you know, Diego Rivera's wife is a painter too, painting pretty pictures, you know? So it's, I think she probably thought that was bullshit, but you do what you do and you get through what you get through. It's so you recently finally visited, they don't call it the Diego house. They call it the Frida house, right? <laughs> yes, the blue house. Nobody says I'm going to the Diego house. No, well, they have their own other little. Uh... But you finally went to the Frida house. I know it, it took it took a minute to get down there. Your grandmother's work is featured prominently in there as well. Yep. What was that like for you? Incredible. It, it, to be able to walk around it's in Mexico City, folks. Just sorry for clarity. It's in Mexico City. Coyacan, to be yeah. specific. Um, yeah. yeah. It is the house that she grew up in. And uh, when my grandmother went with her in 32, it's the house they stayed in. Uh, one of the things that was fun to be able to, because I got a, a kind of a private tour from the director there, um, was um, they weren't sure when the house was painted blue. And they've always been trying to figure out how far back can they specify that that house was blue. And my grandmother had written in her diaries, you know, she went to the blue, it was had a blue house with green trim and pink shutters. And so at least I could tell them, well, at least in, you know, October, 1932, it was already blue. So they could at least go back to that point. And they were real thankful for that. Um, to be able to walk and stand in some of these rooms that I knew my grandmother and Frida, Frida had uh, sat in together uh, it was also cool to see a lot of little knickknack things that we have that I'm like, oh, my grandmother definitely got that when she was in Mexico. Some things, you know, I, I grew up with but didn't know where it came from. Really, it, it was um, it was life-changing for me just to be able to see, but even more so, not just Frida's house, but to go see Diego's murals. I mean, mm-hmm. so we just, we spent, just, you know, walked to every mural we could. That was just astounding. He... I mean, Frida's amazing artist in her small way with her small paintings, but to, to do it on the grand scale that Diego did and how many he did, because, you know, a mural can take months, months and months and months to do. Um, if you're ever in Mexico City, folks, definitely uh, go to the Blue House in Coyacan and definitely check out as many Rivera murals as you can. Um, they're, they're incredible, beautiful pieces of work. I absolutely second that. I was, I would say like most folks say, yeah, Frida, she's cool. I like her stuff. Then I went to the house mm-hmm. a couple of years ago and my, I was like, wow. You know, for some reason, the big takeaway for me in one of the rooms, uh, you know, you can't, everything's behind glass cabinets, but there was a row of her journals mm-hmm. um, and each binder is just artfully decorated mm-hmm. and hand illustrated. And it reminded me a lot of, of uh, an old friend of mine, Dinah, who, is also a powerhouse artist, but just, I was like, Oh, I, I know that girl, you know, that <laughs> young girl is creating that kind of yes. thing. Like, but, but this is a very, 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 very talented version of that. But I was just like, Oh, she, I get it. I get who she was a little bit more. I mean, yeah. in my mind, yeah, right? yeah, we, yeah. we generalize and we categorize people and we think we know, of course, I don't know Frida at all, but like it put her in a new category for me. And I was just like, all of a sudden I was in adoration. Yeah. Of, of the rest of her work from there and the yeah. story. And I was much more open to the rest of her story and her pain and all that kind of stuff. I had to go to the house to really kind of get opened up and cracked open to, to what she was doing. I also went to the museums in Mexico City and saw the Diego works and other muralist works. Yes. Yeah. That just Mexico City for art is incredible. Absolutely. It's, it's one of the top cities I've ever visited for art. Mexico City is an incredible city. Yeah, I want to go just, back. Uh, <laughs> 
you know, if you haven't been to Mexico City, it's a clean, beautiful, safe city that is absolutely worth visiting. And as much as any major metro is clean and beautiful and safe, mm-hmm. uh, Mexico City is, is right up there. Absolutely. So don't be afraid, folks. <laughs> Post-COVID, get down to Mexico City. Go to go to the Frida's Blue House. It's worth the line. Go to the museums. The, you know, there's always yeah. the lines there. It's worth the lines. Oh, there's a line, but there's conversations mm-hmm. in the lines. Mm-hmm. And the, the neighborhood that it's in is really cute mm-hmm. and there's vendors coming by. I was in the rain for four hours. Oh, and gosh. I was like, it's fine. You know, I had a good time. <laughs> and Lennon's house is not too far. Uh, there's a house that, that he was in for a time uh, around the corner. Or no, not Lenin, Trotsky. Yeah, but he was there in the blue house. No, no, no. But who was it that was shot there? Trotsky. There? Trotsky. Well, yeah, he moved Trotsky out. House. Yes, right. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's a Trotsky house yeah. that is actually also really cool, not too far away. There's just a lot of history mm-hmm. in there. It's a magical place. That's all I'm going to say. It about. is. It is. Um, so let's talk about old stage studios. Okay. Uh, because you're the you're the keeper of the flame, so to speak, the the legacy keeper of the family, right? Yeah. And that's manifested as old stage studios. Yes, it is. So what does it do? Um, well, I try to promote my grandmother as an artist, um, as well as her photographs um, in galleries all over the world. Um, but um, mostly, I really try to promote her as an artist. I, I'm I'm where somebody would go if they want to get a you know a copy of um, Rivera's mural, right? So a lot of historical mm-hmm. books, you know, or uh, contact me that are making you know a book on lost art or Rivera or whatever, and I can give them those images. But um, also, just so I'm I'm writing my grandmother's biography. I call it her autobiography because an auto in quotes, because she started her autobiography and I want to kind of start from, from her voice, from what she started and then you know, end in my voice as a biography. Um, as well, I'm working on a photographic book. The first one will probably be a Frida photos because people love Frida, but my grandmother also took photographs of the labor movement. My grandfather was a, a union organizer and um, in uh, Detroit in the, 30s and Flint, the sit-down strike. Um, mm-hmm. And so she took a lot of photographs um, of the of the strikers and of um, just the, the meetings and the it, it's the, it's a whole, you know, as well as you know, New York City, she did, you know, photographs of the city and the streets and uh, so many, you know, interesting and unusual shots of those times. Um, so yeah, basically, I'm just uh, the place people go. Um, my website's down right now. It got hacked, and I've had a hard time um, switching my um, domain, keeping my domain without having to rename it. But anyway, so I don't have a website up right now, but I do have an Instagram where I'm trying to share the stories and get her out there the best and I can. what's the Instagram? Lucien Block. Yeah, at Lucien Block. Lucien Block. B-L-O-C-H. It'll be in the show notes. Yeah. B-L-O-C-H, yeah. It'll be in the show notes. And you have, before your grandmother passed, she printed a mess of Frida photos, correct? That she signed. Yeah, more than just Frida. We printed a bunch of her photographs. So she, we had this little building, which is where my husband and I were living when we first started dating. It was uh, called the Hutch. And it had little running water and a little fan and uh, we turned it into a dark room in the in the mid '90s, and she and I, um, she because she used to print her own photographs in bathrooms. Her, you know, whether if her bathroom could handle it, or she'd go to family members and do printing there in their bathroom. So she had an idea how to lead me on because I had never done printing before, but you know, kind of taught me the ropes. And we just, you know, printed for a couple years and got a little um, portfolio together and contacted galleries and put these beautiful prints. Like I said, Frida's the main seller, but you know, we'll sell a Albert Einstein playing the violin or, you know, mm-hmm. stop mm-hmm. lynching or free the Scottsboro boys. Um, right. you know, her stuff's out there. And, um, but I mean, you know, we are talking about her as an artist. She did so many different medium. I mean, she did lithographs and egg temperate portraits of kids and, you know, besides her frescoes and, You'd always see her at a at a, the state fair doing quick line sketches and um, right. mosaics. So I mean, there's, if you've ever been to the Greek Orthodox Church of the Ascension up in Oakland Hills, if you walk in that church, all the all those mosaics she did took her three years to do all those mosaics. 
um, just another incredible skill that she had. Is it crazy to you to think that your grandmother is going to go down best known as the author and illustrator of a cat book? <laughs> Um, I think she would absolutely love that. I think she's clapping and slapping her thighs right now. Um, it's going to happen, Lucien. <laughs> and it's going to happen. Even if I have to get up there in the dark of the night and and uh, hijack that thing under your noses and then come back a few years later with the, the finished product. I like it. Uh, so as amazing as your grandmother was and is, because her work is alive, so she's alive, uh, you were just named the secretary for the International Ernest Block Society. Apparently, your grandmother had a father. She Weird. did. I know. I know. Yeah. They, yeah. they say everyone has one somewhere. Yeah. Um, so her father was a composer and um, very well before his time. If you know cello music in particular, he wrote a lot for cello music. Some call him a Jewish composer, but not all of his pieces were written um, with that um, in mind. But he did write uh, one of his most famous pieces called Avodah HaKodesh, which is the sacred service for the Jewish people. But he, um, yeah, he was an interesting fellow himself. One of her bonds with Frida being that Diego was always having an affair. Frida, when she said she hated her, thought she was going to have an affair with Diego. But when my grandmother explained that her father was the same way, um, that helped their bond. But so he always had his girlfriend, <laughs> had his girlfriends on the side. and. Um, but so, yeah, we just, the Ernest Bach, International Ernest Bach Society just is ramping up these days. Um, I've gotten involved. Um, my second cousin and I are kind of the family representatives, and I, I'm kind of the secretary of sorts. And yeah, I mean, we actually have another meeting tomorrow morning. We're just really kind of delving into the, the next chapter of that society and what it holds. 20, 2030 is going to be his 150th anniversary of his birth. So it's going to be a big year. We're going to try to get a bunch of his pieces played throughout the world. And he was Swiss he, at birth as well? Yes. He was Swiss, yeah. right? Yeah. Is he, is he more famous in Switzerland? No. No? No, uh -uh. no because uh -uh. Um, some people want to claim him there, but a lot of them um, are kind of anti-Semitic and don't want that. Um, even though he was not a practicing Jew in his older days, he can be heralded as, as such. And um, no, probably America, uh, Japan loves him, and um, Italy loves him. <laughs> you know? uh, yeah, yeah, he's a he's. If, you know, listen to his piece, America. He won it. He won it a competition in 1925, and that cemented his. Uh, Love of America. That's called. Come on, Switzerland. Don't be anti-Semitic. <laughs> if if the Axis powers can love him, right? You can love him. Oh, yeah. England. Geez. England also big heavy. So the international okay. artist box. Everybody loves him. Yeah. yeah. Base there. Yeah. All right. He's a peacemaker. Yeah. Uh, so as as I'm curious here, and I haven't asked you this before as your friend, but as sort of the family legacy keeper, has that ever felt limiting to you? Or I mean, for like when I hear it, I'm like, God, to be able to honor my family like that. It seems like a, such a noble thing and, and really dreamy. But then on the other hand, I get like, gosh, does, does Lucienne ever feel like she wasn't afforded the opportunity to, you know, be her own person? Uh, I chose this path. <laughs> I, you know, I grew up next door to my grandparents. They were a huge yeah. part of my life. I heard the stories growing up, all the stories, stories of her father and her mother and her sister and brother. And um, it's when you come from a storyteller family, I just think that that's, yeah. you know, just becomes you. So I always told stories too. So to be able, it's an honor for me to be able to, to carry this on. Yeah. And, you know, I think I look at my kids. Um, so I raised five kids and um, my youngest is 22 now. And she um, taken a semester off to, before she graduates from UC Berkeley. All my kids' successes, I think, are. I kind of look at them, and I'm so proud that it. It feels like that's you know kind of part of my art too. I, I helped create them. Absolutely. So you know that that's. Um, I don't feel lacking at all. Dave, David will give you some credit too. Fifteen uh, percent. Yeah. Okay. We'll give you fifteen percent. Yeah. <laughs> it's definitely a partnership. Uh, yeah. David, you and I still have to play basketball one day if our backs will hold up. It'll, maybe it'll just be horse. <laughs> I don't think just, he'll just stationary. Just be horse. He'll 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 just stationary me. shooting. Oh, he'll flatten me is the thing, but that's okay. <laughs> I have health insurance. <laughs> so before I forget, before I forget, folks, 
I want to go back to the fact that Old Stage Studios doesn't have a website. If you're out there, you're a fan of anything that you've heard just now, and you feel like, hey, that would be easy for me to fix, you know, I can go clearly, Lucien is, is need some techno-savvy help here to get the website back up. Um, why don't you reach out to her, you know, and do it out of the bottom of your heart. Do the super nice favor of restoring this family's artwork. Somebody out there, I know you can help her get a site up in half a day. I tried like a year ago. It's a domain it transfer. Yeah. Yeah. It's a domain transfer issue. It's not a complicated thing. I would love it. Matter of fact, if you will fix her issue, I will send you a glorious, super nice club swag kit. I won't <laughs> tell you what's in it because we have a bunch of new stuff coming, but a, a glorious swag kit to whoever can help. Can, whoever can help. I love it. I love it. Yeah. Let's, let's, let's get that thing fixed. Let's get that website up. These are beautiful photos that need to be up there and, and, and seen and appreciated again. Okay. Now we're going to turn to the Super Nice Club Insiders because we get to, uh, they get to ask a question. Super Nice Club Insiders, if you want to be an insider and ask questions from our podcast guests and also get all kinds of free stuff. We give away lots of free stuff. I'm giving away a, actually a, a piece of vinyl from Nine Inch Nails drummer Elon Rubin, former podcast guest, later today. But that'll be in the past by the time you hear that I gave it away and you missed out. But if you want to be given other free stuff, just text text Frida to 310-421-0393. 310-421-0393. Okay, plug finished. Here's the question. It's from Bruce K. in Santa Rosa, California. He asks... Ask her how we transition to a society where we find deep value in sufficiently providing for the authentic well-being of all generations of all species. Wow. That's a question. Can you handle it? I will start with that. My grandmother would have loved that question. Um, that's right up her alley. Uh, you know, the first mural she ever did had signs in the background that says, down with police brutality down with imperialist war, organize. Um, I'm going to add to that, that, you know, we love. I mean, if, if we can mm -hmm. go at each situation with a heart of love, it doesn't matter what species you are, I guess that would be a way to um, grow and move in the positive direction. Absolutely. I, I think love is the ultimate answer to that question. And, you know, Bruce would probably say amen to that. I don't know, Bruce. Let us know what you think. How do we how do we get more love out there? I don't know. How do we make the world 10% It starts nicer? with you. Yeah. It starts with Bruce. You met Bruce, right? <laughs> Just through this podcast. Just Bruce. Did you ever, um, did you or David ever listen? Were you ever, oh, that's probably Bruce. That's probably Bruce. Go ahead and pick it up. I just. <laughs> did you guys ever grow up? Did, were you ever fans of the Nitty Gritty Dirt Band? Oh, yes. Okay. Well, that was one of the founders that asked that question, Bruce. Oh, cool. Yeah. I know. There you go. Okay. So now, now you guys are friends. Kunkel? Kunkel. Yeah. <laughs> so you actually were a fan. There you yeah. go. Yeah, that was Bruce Kunkel. Uh, and you go to Santa Rosa enough, you yep. guys should connect. Adult friend finder, but like, like adults and friends, <laughs> not some weird dating thing. All right. So do you have a challenge? We do a super nice challenge where you just issue it to the listeners and the members of the super nice club, something they can do to make their world a little bit nicer. I do have a challenge. Um, Let's hear it. So my challenge is I would like everyone to maybe just, you know, a couple days this week, maybe make it a habit. If you set an alarm, maybe set it for five minutes earlier. And it's something I've done for years now. Mm -hmm. Before you get out of bed, I want you to think about five things that you're grateful for. Really think about them. Give yourself, you know, a good minute per item if you can, or if you really want to zip through them on mornings that you're just in a rush, go for it. But if you can start your morning off with gratitude in that way, you don't have to write it down. You can if you want to. It's also really good. But sometimes just thinking about it while you're laying there prostrate puts that in your mind. And, you know, you can actually start the day off feeling a little bit nicer. Before you get out of bed. Before you get out of bed. Yep. Five things you're grateful for. Yep. Okay. That would be a great daily habit. I I have one, uh, a BJ Fogg tiny habit, which is just when you, you put your feet on the ground and first thing to, you know, express some gratitude. Like, oh yeah, I'm grateful it's be a great day. That's even better. Or it's, it's additive. I'm going to list five things in the morning. All right. Challenge accepted. Awesome. Challenge accepted. I hope so for the rest of you folks. That's, that's an easy one. Yeah. 
I had a different challenge. <laughs> I was listening to one of your podcasts yesterday and the guy said something way too similar. And I'm like, shit, I got to come up with a different <laughs> challenge. <laughs> so I'm like, so is that your dog's name? No, that was Sheba that barked. Oh, you said shit. The dog barked. Yes. <laughs> but the dog's name is Sheba. I get it. All right. Smart, smart dog. It was close. And then lastly, do you have a question for me? Guests get to ask me a question, turn it around. I do. Anything you want to know, fire away. But I got to figure out where I wrote it down. Oh, you wrote down the question Yeah, for me? I did. That makes me nervous. No, it's okay. All right. Do I have a question for you? I sure do. <laughs> Ooh. Um, if you could go back to one historical event to witness it, what would it be and why? One historic. This is like one of those like classic questions. Wow. Um, one historical event. Well, my birth would not be a historical event. No, not yet. No, um, no, no. no, it wouldn't be. I wouldn't want to witness my birth. No, God. No. Um, hi, mom. <laughs> <laughs> to witness. I, I know this is really so such a common answer, but it's the truth. Who wouldn't want to witness? the birth of our universe. Oh, Who wouldn't want to be one. able to be witness to that? And if there wasn't a birth somehow, that's then at least, you know, I, then I witnessed nothing. But whatever the, the, the initial spark is, uh, for me to be able to witness it, that would mean that I would need to have the, the tools uh, and the comprehension to be able to witness it, right? So I would imagine I probably wouldn't be human yeah. at that point. Yeah. I don't think a human could be able to witness the first event. Uh, so whatever transformation that took, you could be a star. Or you could be a star of me, or whatever it took. That would be. I mean, God, what an opportunity! Awesome answer. <laughs> yeah. So that would be my answer. Good job. Thanks. I, I passed. You did. Passed. Okay. Okay. Cool. Right. That, that makes me. Are feel... you still doing that weird thing where you come up with something unusual to? I don't know. You did. I don't think you've done it the last couple of podcasts I listened to. You just come up with something weird, and you would be like, "Hey." Just an odd segue. Yeah. Was it a second? No, yeah. no. You were like, "Do you turn one of them? Do you do you take your shirts off inside out and leave them inside out?" Or oh, yeah, sort of a, a strange non sequitur. Yeah, if it hits me, if I'm if we're talking and just something comes up, you just I'll do. throw it out there. Cool. Yeah, if I not, think those are really interesting. By the way, I think you should. Keep yeah, them. if not, not it's they're kind of a hard thing to plan for. I, I liked it. I thought it was super, yeah. super cool. Yeah. I know that they often kind of fall flat, but I don't. Oh, I don't but really you care. don't know that we're not laughing our ass off at home. No, but I, when I'm going, I, I often, I'm often going, rolling my eyes, going, <laughs> did I really just say that? And then I'll be there, should I edit it out? I'm like, no, it's like, just leave it, you know. But I'd appear, I'd appear much more like my shit's together if I edit that out. Nah. Yeah. So like everything that's questionable that you hear, it's, I have the opportunity okay. to edit that out. That's good. But I'm like, fuck it. <laughs> and I say. Um, Lucien, I'm glad we got to just scratch the surface there of your crazy, wonderful family of artists and Ernest, I'm sorry we didn't dive deeper into your work. Uh, sorry guy, maybe next time, but uh, I'm such a fan of your grandmother's work. And I know that the, the, the tide of Frida is such a big thing for her and for you, just in terms of a very popular figure with whom her life intertwined, right? Yeah. Is that how you say it? Yeah. With whom her life? Yeah. Yeah. A little awkward sentence construction there, but that's okay. People are used to it. Uh, and I hope that listeners that are fans of Frida's really take the moment to, to check out your grandmother's work. I think it, it, if you know Lucien Bloch's work, it enriches your appreciation for Frida's work. Because anytime you're into an artist, the artist's influences and the artist's peer group are so much of, of who they are and what they created. And it gives you just that much more perspective on their work. So take a deep dive into... Lucien Block, and let us know what you think. Let us know what you think of her work. I want to hear about it. Comment on the uh, on the, on this post on on the Instagrams and the Facebooks and everything like that. I'm a fan. I keep hoping that one day I'll come across like on eBay one of the the gold or I mean the uh, glass hood ornaments. You will. Thank you for giving us your time and sharing your stories with us. Thank you so much, Todd. This is a lot of fun. So there you have it. A super nice conversation with Lucien Allen. Yeah, a little different perspective there on Frida Kahlo. I think just different in that 
you know, a lot of times when, when there are people that have a connection to Frida or they're historians, they're kind of fawning. As amazing as Frida was, um, it was nice to get a perspective that was just more balanced, just more neutral. Like, yeah, this is an incredible artist who uh, hung out with other incredible artists. Um, you know, she wasn't a divine being. Right. So maybe a little demystifying for some folks, maybe a little disappointing for some folks who were, were hoping to have her heralded as, you know, this, this incredible glowing um, saint. Uh, but she wasn't. She was a woman with issues. She was a woman with problems. She was a woman with struggles. And like Lucien said, you know, she, she battled with the, the medications and uh, towards the end of her life was, was you know, rightfully... Um, far from a saint, right? And isn't that okay? Don't you, I, I mean, I really prefer to be able to identify with others who create beauty um, and, and not see them as, as something that is impossible to attain or as some sort of specially appointed by God divine creature, right? The more my favorite talents look, act, and feel human to me, the more I feel, oh, you know, that's attainable to me. I could have those special talents too. I don't know. Maybe maybe we look at that. Maybe we look at that differently. Uh, in, in talking with Lucienne in the past about Frida, it actually made me appreciate her more because she just felt so much more relatable, and I could relate more directly to her her types of pain, or at least I could understand them more. I'm rambling a little bit. Maybe you get my point. Maybe you don't. Here's the cool thing. We get to do this all over again next Tuesday with Ryan Van Duzer. Ryan is amazing. All my guests are amazing. But Ryan, if you're into bicyclists, if you're into just inspired lives, living an inspired life, and you don't know who Ryan Van Duzer is, just Google Duzer. Yeah, D-U-Z-E-R. That should do it. You might have to add Ryan. You might have to add Ryan Van. But do it. Ryan Van Duzer. And it'll be out next Tuesday. Until then, everybody, what am I going to say? Stay nice. If you wanted to be nicer, then you could lend a helping hand. If you wanted to be nicer, then you could see your neighbor's band. If you wanted to be nicer, then you could put away your clothes. You can teach everything you know And all we ask is that you just become 10% more nice And all we ask is that you just become 10% more nice That you just become 10% more nice And all we ask is that you just become 10% more nice So what? Big deal